Amen. All right. First Peter chapter 5, we're going to read uh, verses 1 to 5. God's Word says this. So, so I exhort the elders among you. I want to pause there for just a second. Uh, when Peter is speaking of elders, he's not talking about the elderly, but he's talking about the elders, that is, uh, the church leaders, men in the church that have been called to lead the local church through preaching and teaching. He says, so I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed. He says this instruction in verse 2, shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. Likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another, for God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. This is the word of the Lord. As we draw uh, close to the end of our time in uh, the book of First Peter, we'll conclude uh, this letter next week and then head into a Christmas uh, series. Uh, we come now to an intimate uh, moment of instruction from Peter to the elders of the church. So this is the elders of the churches he is writing to throughout uh, Asia. In reading this passage, the story of Peter's restoration uh, to ministry by Jesus, as accounted for in John 21, kind of came to my mind as I was reading through. If you recall the life of Peter, uh, Peter was uh, kind of the the leader of the disciples. He questioned Jesus at times. Uh, He was one of Jesus' inner circle. There were three disciples that were incredibly close to Jesus. Peter was one of those. He's called the rock of the church. Uh, But Peter, towards the end of Jesus' earthly life, uh, he had some shortcomings. And one of those Jesus pointed out in the Last Supper, he said that Peter would deny him three times, which Peter actually told Jesus, no, I'm not going to do that. I'm going I'm to stand by your side. But we know uh, in Scripture it's accounted for that Peter did, in fact, deny Jesus three times right before Jesus was led uh, to his death. And so this passage, as I'm reading through this, this, that circumstance kind of came to mind. And then thinking through, if you've read through the end of, of John, uh, after Jesus is resurrected, we come to the story in John 21, where Peter now is, is confronted. He's kind of face to face with Jesus, with the resurrected Christ. So Jesus has already gone to the cross. He's died. He's rose from the dead now. And the setting at, at the end of John, in John chapter 21, is this. It's, it's in the Sea of Tiberias. Uh, the disciples have been out on the boat. They've hauled in this miraculous catch of fish. And Jesus is on the shoreline. He's got the fire prepared. He's inviting them to come over and share in a meal, breakfast on the shoreline. I'm sure that joy has filled the hearts of the disciples as they, as they see Jesus, the risen Christ, among them. And now, now we, we're drawn into this story in, in John chapter 21 where Jesus is sitting across from, from Peter. And I can imagine that Jesus, when he's talking to Peter, is looking him in the eyes. And he says this to Peter. He says, Simon, do you love me more than these? Simon Peter then responds, yes, Lord, you know I love you. Jesus says this, feed my lambs. And again, 
Jesus asked Peter, Simon, do you love me? I can imagine now in this moment, have you, have you guys been here when you, when you know the tears are starting to come and you kind of get that big old gigantic lump in your throat, just kind of moves up uh, from your chest up into your throat and, and the tears start to well up in the corner of your eyes. I can, I can imagine that, that Peter's starting to have that moment where it's like, I can't even swallow. I can't even think. The, the tears are coming too and they're, and they're filling my eyes. And Peter responds, yes, Lord. You know that I love you. Jesus says, tend my sheep. And yet again, a third time, matching the three denials of Peter, Jesus says, Simon, do you love me? I can imagine that the tears now, the lump goes away and the tears break way on Peter's face. Peter, it says in scripture that Peter is grieved by the third asking of this question. And he says, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. And Jesus says this, feed my sheep. Then he says, truly, truly, I say to you, when you were young, You used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted, but when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and another will dress you and carry you where you do not want to go. Then Jesus says this right after that statement. I can imagine he's looking at Peter and he says, follow me. Follow me. Peter here. This is the moment where Jesus redeems and restores Peter from his past failures. Peter owns, I believe, the second greatest betrayal in all of human history. And Jesus looks him in the eye and says, you who denied me, you who betrayed me, follow me. Feed my sheep. These words that we read this morning are brought by that man, Peter. Peter, in obedience to the command of Jesus, feed my sheep, brings us now this, our main idea for today. Our main idea is this, redeemed men of God oversee. When you see that word oversee your shepherd, we mean lead, provide, protect the blood-bought people of God. Redeemed men of God, lead, provide, protect the blood-bought people people of God. God has called some men in the local church to lead his flock. Let's look at the first two verses. Peter says this, so I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed. He says this, shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight. Peter here is calling, the word he uses is exhort, that's a word that means to call, to call the elders to their task as this is their task, they are under shepherds, okay, they're not the chief shepherd, they're not the main shepherd, they're the under shepherds under the chief shepherd given the task of leading the local church. I want you to take notice of a few things here uh, while we're discussing this main point, a few things that we can pull from these verses. Number one, Peter associates himself on the level of the leaders. Uh, He does not here appeal to his status as an apostle. He's an apostle, okay, an authoritative figure in the church. But rather here he points out that he is a fellow elder. He's one that has witnessed the sufferings of Jesus 
and who himself has experienced redemption by Christ. He's experienced forgiveness by Jesus face to face when Jesus looked at him and said, follow me. Feed my sheep. That's what Peter's doing here. He's feeding the sheep. The second point I want you to notice in this opening section is that that Peter points them to the future. He calls us this, partakers of this, the glory to be revealed. We know that as this moment. It's the moment of Christ's, Jesus' glorious, imminent return. We believe that Jesus is coming back. And so Peter is pointing them to something in the future, something that's greater than all of us. And the third thing that Peter points out is that he has called elders to shepherd the flock of God, he says, among you, exercising oversight. I want to give you a picture this morning. Ancient shepherds, okay, they didn't drive the flock from behind. They didn't whip them and, and drive them into submission to drive them where they wanted them to go. But rather, ancient shepherds led from out in front, calling the sheep to follow them. They were out in front of the flock, I want you to think back to our series. We had a series we went through uh, throughout most of the summer in the book of Exodus. When the Israelites were, were redeemed from Egypt, when they were delivered from slavery, they were led by something. Do you guys recall what that was? Out in front of them was a pillar of fire and smoke. It was God's presence that led them. It wasn't driving them from behind, but it led out in front showing them the way. God's under-shepherds, that is, the elders of the flock, they, they lead the flock entrusted to them in a similar manner. We're out in front exhorting the church or calling them to follow, gently leading the church to the location that God has called them to. Also, the, the flock here is described in a, in a certain manner. It's, it's described as the flock of God. Did you guys notice that? Okay, I don't own the flock. The elders of North Bullet Christian Church, they don't own the flock. The flock is under the care of God, ultimately. It's his flock. And I want you to, to wrestle, to come to grips with this point. The, the, the flock was not, was not purchased frivolously nor, nor cheaply. The flock was, was bought with a price. And that price is this. It's the precious blood of Jesus Christ. And so therefore the, the elders oversee, that is they lead, provide, protect the blood-bought people of God. What a weighty task. Paul, in speaking to the elders at, at Ephesus in the book of Acts, he says this in Acts 20, verse 28. He says, Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God. Now hear this last statement. Which he obtained with what? His own blood. Family, those of you who have called upon the name of Jesus have been purchased with the blood of Christ. 
This church is, it's the bride of Christ. That's how scripture describes you, purchased by his precious blood. Christ, Jesus, stood condemned for his people, not deservedly, but willingly, took our place, our punishment, our lashing, our nails. The nails that were driven into his hands and his feet on the cross were nails that we deserve to receive. He shed his blood as a payment for your sins and my sins. Therefore, God does not take lightly the task of those whom he has called to lead his church. It's his blood-bought people. And so this morning we're going to look at, uh, we're going to pull out four marks of a healthy leader, a healthy elder this morning as we travel through this passage. Mark number one is this, a willingness to lead. Willingness to lead. A healthy leader, and and in this local church context, a, a, a healthy church leader or elder should be a willing participant uh, to lead. They're not dragged into that position. They're not coerced into that position. They're willing to carry out the task that God has called them to. They don't take it lightly, but they, they understand the gravity, the weight of their calling. Peter says this in verse 2. We're going to look at just part of verse 2. He says, not under compulsion, but willingly as God would have you. Notice the last statement, as God would have you. It's God who calls an elder to the church. It's God who calls men into leadership. There has to be a calling from God to lead in that manner. Again, we can't just frivolously approach this this office within the church, but it has to be determined by a calling from God. And when the local church approaches this particular office without due reverence, we see trouble emerging. Evidence of calling is found, though, rather simply. What does it look like to be called? Are people following these these men, these elders, prior to their calling? That's a mark of leadership. Are they exercising oversight in the church even without the title? Here's some specific marks. Are they discipling other believers, perhaps teaching Sunday school, or are they eager to serve and then also call others to serve? Call others to their example. Are people already following them? I know as I, as I discerned my calling to pastor a church, I didn't just hold in that to myself, but I sought out advice from wise and mature Christians around me and asked them what they thought. In honesty, honestly, do you think I'm called to this task? I first looked at my own life as, as an associate pastor at, at my last church, and I said, okay, are people following me in a healthy way without that lead pastor title? Yes, people are following me. I'm discipling people. I then went to previous pastors that I had in my life, the, the pastor that I, I grew up under his teaching. Him and I went out and had lunch. His name's Roger. I said, Roger, I'm sensing a call to lead pastoral ministry. What do you think about that? And he affirmed that calling in my life. There were a number of other men that I respected in the church that affirmed that calling. 
I asked other people, do, do you see me as a leader? Would you follow me if I was a, a leader in the church in that manner? And so simply put, looking at, at eldership, does this person have a track record of leadership, a willingness to lead God's church? That's a mark of, of a healthy elder, a healthy leader. Another mark, number two, they're eager to serve. Eager to serve. The last part of verse 2, Peter says this, not for shameful gain, but eagerly. They're eager to serve. A servant's heart is at the core of church leadership. We don't, we don't approach this task for the direct purpose of personal gain, but rather eager to shepherd the flock of God among us. Although Scripture allows and encourages a remuneration for the elders who preach and teach, this is not to be approached from a point of shameful gain, but God's blessed provision for the one dedicated to the instruction and service of the church. And so why is this important? Why is it important to point this out? Because we need men, hear this, we need men, especially in the day and age that we're in, with the intestinal fortitude to preach the word boldly. Pastoring, shepherding, leading God's church, if I'm honest, is, it's no easy task. It's not to be taken lightly. There's a, a myriad of opinions and pressures, and an elder must desire first in the midst of the opinions and pressures to bring about the most God-honoring outcome for his flock, for their flock. If it's for shameful gain, then it becomes a slippery slope to succumb to the pressure to teach in a manner that does this, that tickles the itching ears of the hearers. But God has called elders. He says this, Paul says this to Timothy. He says, preach the word, be ready in season and out of season. He says, reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. I love, again, that word exhort because it means, church, that the elders of, of North Bullet are calling you to something better, calling you out. They're out in front leading. And of all people, we have Christ as our example. Jesus could have, being God, taking on human flesh, coming to earth, he could have come into the world demanding complete submission and all worldly possessions. The scripture says that he owns a cattle on a thousand hills. And yet, Mark tells us this in Mark 10, 45. He says this about Jesus. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. May the elders and church leaders of, of North Bullet exemplify that statement. That we don't come wishing to make everybody serve us, but to serve you faithfully and to give our lives sacrificially. That's what Jesus did. He gave his life sacrificially, to give ourselves, ourselves sacrificially to this flock that God has entrusted to us. Number three, point number three. Marks of a healthy leader are this, an example to follow. An example to follow. Verse 3, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. 
An elder, one of the the main qualifications of an elder is a, a man called to teach the flock. We often associate teaching with words, right? But as the old saying goes, actions speak louder than words, don't they? Our elders can say all they want about the Bible. Our elders can instruct with words until we're, we're blue in the face, but they mean nothing if they are not first examples to be followed. That's the greatest teaching that we can have in the church is that we, are, we have church leaders established who are examples first in their personal life and in their spiritual growth. The greatest teaching comes by the example set by leaders. Again, the, the ancient flocks were led out in front by the shepherds, exampling this, the path to follow. Not domineering, not from behind, driving with a whip, but gently guiding the church towards growth in these areas, growth in Christ-likeness, and instilling the mission we are called to accomplish. Jesus gave us a mission, family. He said, go therefore and make disciples of all nations. Elders, it says in in the book of Ephesians, equip the church for the work of ministry and the building up of the body of Christ. That first and foremost is our mission when we gather together, is that we are equipping and stirring each other up along with praising Jesus. We are being built up to be sent back out to be equipped for the work of ministry in the world. Jesus' 12 disciples... They struggled at times for position and power and recognition. Jesus exampled for them a a gentle and lowly heart, a heart to, to serve and to love. But this does not lessen the impact of his direct speech and rebuke of an instance where he was engaged with two men known as the sons of Zebedee. These two disciples of Jesus had had demanded a a place by his side in in the kingdom to come. When they made this, this domineering request of the Son of God, Jesus did not miss this moment to example and teach others. He said this in Mark 10, 42 to 44. It says, And Jesus called them to him and said to them, this is after their request is made, He said, You know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them? And their great ones exercise authority over them. So he's talking about worldly types of leadership. He says this to his followers. He says, but it shall not be so among you. You're going to be different. That's what Jesus is saying. But whoever would be great among you, hear this, must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be slave to all. Church leaders are to be an an example to follow, not lording over. Because Jesus said, my leadership is not like that. It's different. I love that saying. I love that teaching. It shall not be so among you. Jesus is saying, my people, my leaders, my elders, my deacons, my Sunday school teachers, my women's ministry leaders, my student ministry workers, my kids' ministry helpers will not lord it over others. They are to be different from worldly leaders. Rather, they will teach with all patience and humility. A far cry from the domineering, self-serving leadership of the world around us. 
the last mark of a healthy leader, mark number four, we're prepared for Jesus, we're preparing for Jesus. We're prepared for Jesus. If, if you've been involved with a, with a corporation or any organized like organization, they will have an, an org chart, right? An organizational chart. And who's at the top of that chart? You have the, usually the CEO, the chief executive officer, and then from there you have the CFO, the, the chief financial officer, and then the CMO, the chief marketing officer, and then I don't know what other chiefs there are, but a bunch of other chiefs. And under that you have middle management, and then under that you have lower management, and under that you have all the subordinates that report up. But the church's org chart looks like this at the top. The very top square on the church's org chart says this, Jesus, head of the church. Family, it's not me. I'm not at the top. It's not a favored elder among the people that's at the top. It's not a patriarch or a matriarch of the church that's at the top. It's not the old church curmudgeon at the top. But rather, it's this. It is Jesus who is the head of the church. The church leaders are just under shepherds serving this, the chief shepherd, Jesus. And we must recognize his leadership, his vision, his direction, his mission for his bride. Says this in verse 4, And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. So we are people heading towards something. We act in accordance with the attributes listed above. And even those family now, this, this starts coming down to us. Even those aimed at the elders as, as the example for the flock, the rest of the church must be following their example. So they're modeling these things. They're not domineering. The church is not looking for shameful gain. The church is not looking for its own status or elevation, but rather to elevate this. The church's purpose is to elevate this. The name above all names, the King of kings and the Lord of lords, Jesus Christ. We're heading towards that, that crown of unfading glory. The athletes in this time, in this time frame, they would compete and they were given a crown that was usually made out of branches and sticks with leaves all over it. Maybe flowers intertwined on it. Now the flower vase that you set uh, on your table with fresh flowers, what happens after a week or so? They start to wilt and wither. The, the crown, the leaves would start to fall out like the trees. The leaves are all falling all around us. So they'd receive this, this crown for their, their victory, but eventually it would fade and wither and fall away. But Jesus promises this when he comes back. He promises a crown of unfading glory. James, the brother of Jesus, instructs in this manner. He says this in James 1, verse 12. He says, Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial, for when he has stood the test, hear this, he will receive the crown of life which God has promised, what? To those who love him. We're headed somewhere, family. We're going this direction. We're going to the greener pasture. We're going to the crystal clear water. We're going where the sun shines, thank goodness, on a day like this. We're going where there's no predators and there's no sin and there's no shame. The elders here at this church are preparing you for this to meet Jesus. Jesus. 
That's our supreme task. It's of utmost importance. It's what we as church leaders will stand and give an account for. Man, that is just a terrifying statement to think of. That I as a church leader will stand before Jesus one day and he's going to say, hey, what would you do with my bride? Did you take care of her? Did you help her? Did you love her? Did you help her to grow in sanctification and obedience of my word? Did you speak truth to her? Is she prepared? And hear this now. We're preparing for the arrival of this, the bridegroom. When he comes, when the bridegroom comes in all his glory... And we don't want to be, as the bride of Christ, busted and divided when he arrives. But we want to be well put together, well prepared, dressed in white, clothed in perfection, filled with his spirit, honoring him alone. We're heading towards that wedding feast where the best wine flows and the choicest meat is served. We're preparing for when the chief shepherd comes. And if we're dressed in his righteousness, holding fast to his faithfulness and accomplishing his mission, we will receive this, his word says, the unfading crown of glory. That beautiful crown of life. An eternity at the table of that wedding feast. That's what we're heading towards. And so what is the response of a healthy church to this type of leadership is this. Peter concludes with this, humility. Humility. He says, Likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. Clothe yourselves. I can't imagine Peter's writing here. He says, clothe yourselves. And hey, wait, wait a second. He says, all of you. All of you clothe yourselves with humility toward one another. For God opposes, the scripture comes to his mind. For God opposes the proud but gives grace to what? The humble. Gives grace to the humble. A simple question. Would you humble yourselves under God's instruction? Under God's word? This whole section, the the detail of leadership qualities The preparedness for Jesus comes down to this quality. Clothe yourself with humility. Be humble. If we humble ourselves first in submission to the gospel message and the lordship of Jesus and then mutually submit or humble ourselves to each other, we put to death this pride and ego and selfish ambition and we love one another in Humility. The author of Hebrews says this in Hebrews 13, 17 to 18. He says, Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. He says this, Let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. Pray for us, for we are sure that we have a a clear conscience desiring to act honorably in all things. And so family, we, we end with this. First off, I want to I say this. Family, church, bride of Christ, you are a joy to lead and to partner with in ministry. 
I speak on behalf of the elders. We love you. And you're a joy to lead. Peter often calls his church, he says, beloved. We have that same feeling about this body of Christ, beloved. We will continue to serve you and lead you and teach you. And the author of Hebrews instructs in this way. He says, make it a joy to lead. Make it a joy that we exist together and that we're heading on mission together. We're headed a direction. And so I ask you one simple thing. One takeaway, if you don't remember anything else out of this sermon, would you pray? Would you pray? Would you humble yourselves before the Lord? And would you do this? Would you pray for our leadership? Would you pray for our church? Would you pray for our elders and our deacons and our church staff and our ministry leaders by name? Would you contend with the Lord on behalf of us? Would you, I beg of you and I ask you this, would you pray for me? I need your prayers. This is a weighty task that we've been called to. Would you pray for me? Would you humble yourself before the Lord and call upon his name on behalf of me? That we do this, that we hold fast to the word of God, that we keep a strong faith, and that we prepare you well to meet the Savior upon his return. That is every person who calls this church their church home, when they come into the presence of Jesus, that they would hear these words, well done, good and faithful servant. I pray that for you. We carry a heavy burden. We're preparing the bride to meet her bridegroom. And so let us, family, strive towards this task in this way. In humility, in eagerness, in willingness, and in faith, and in hope, and in love. Will you pray for us, family? Will you contend with us? Will you humble yourselves along with us as we serve and love one another, as we stir one another up towards good deeds? I want to invite the band to come forward as now we respond to the preaching of the word. We do this by receiving communion. The Lord's Supper is a family of Christ. And so I want to invite you, if you've not picked up uh, the cup as you came in, if you're a follower of Jesus, would you partake with us this morning? I believe that the Lord's Supper is, is the most beautiful response that we can have to the preaching of the Word, the preaching and teaching of the Word. But I want, to, I want to state this first. This is for those who have faith in Jesus. And so I want to invite those of you who are, are among us who may identify as being skeptical of the gospel or who are in, in unbelief, just, just outright unbelief of what Jesus accomplished on the cross. I want to invite you in. You've heard what Jesus has accomplished for those who call upon his name. They are the, the blood-bought people of God. 
His word says in Romans 5.10 that, that even while we were his enemies, that he sent his son to die for us. That's how much God loves you. And he's calling out to you this morning by the power of his spirit to be reconciled with him. Jesus would say this, repent and believe. What does repentance mean? It means that you will turn away from your sinful ways, your rebellion against God, and you will humbly submit yourself to his lordship, his salvation, a salvation that can be won for you by his work alone. Our works are but filthy rags in his sight. Place your faith and trust in Jesus Christ this morning. And if you've made that decision, we want to invite you to come to the table with us and eat and drink and remember your Savior as you receive communion. And for those of you who are followers of Jesus in this room, this is a time of incredible unity. We talked about the wedding feast that is to come at the end of all things upon the return of Christ. We are practicing, in a sense, when we receive the Lord's Supper, we're practicing for that feast. We come together as the people of God sharing a meal together, the bread that represents the body of Christ and the juice that represents the blood of Christ that was shed for your sin. And it's an atoning blood, a a sin-covering blood that we're clothed in his righteousness by his blood. And so as we eat and drink, we remember his sacrifice on the cross, and we ask these questions of ourselves so that we may receive this in a worthy manner. We ask this, am I living a life of faith in Christ's work? Do I believe in the gospel, and am I living in light of the gospel? Two, am I applying gospel grace to those around me? And then lastly, do I give this? Do I give sacrificial forgiveness to those who have wronged me? We have all wronged God. We have all wronged Jesus. And he sacrificially gave himself to bring about forgiveness and reconciliation to his Father. We must grant that also in our lives. Do we give sacrificial forgiveness to those who have wronged us. And so for just a few moments, the band's going to play quietly as we sit and reflect and, and search our hearts by the, by the power of the Spirit and repent of sin in our lives and ask those questions as we seek uh, the Lord. We eat, drink, and remember